This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, this is Drew Dawkin. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I know we were off last week. We're recording now on December 3rd. It's a Tuesday. So let's get into some of the numbers on what you guys have been seeing on your screens. So when the markets opened today, the Dow was down 423.65 points at one point. Um, so that was a loss of 1.52%. The S&P was down 33.53 points or 1.08%. We saw the fix start the day up um, uh, by 11.40%. So it was hovering around mid-16s. Uh, so we've seen an increased amount of volatility. A lot of this is in response to the president saying he'd be willing to wait after the election to sign a China trade deal, which is, you know, taking really out of the wind out of the sails of a lot of the initial trade optimism. So we've also seen, you know, we're looking across chip manufacturing and big tech companies and, and manufacturing everything else. We've seen Apple, Caterpillar and Boeing posting some losses. Uh, Caterpillar's down two and a half percent. Intel's down two and a half percent. Apple's down two point four percent. And then the Van Eck Vector Semiconductor ETF, uh, which is an ETF that tracks American shipmakers, is down 2%. So let's kind of talk about some of these economic factors we've seen since our last episode, uh, namely consumer confidence, GDP growth, you know, manufacturing data, auto sales. I guess I'd like to start with consumer confidence, which... The Consumer Confidence Board showed a dip to 125.5 this month, or, or I should say November, which was down from 126.1 in October. Economists that had been pulled by the Dow Jones initially expected the index to rise to 126.6. We should also mention that the present situation index fell to 166.9, down from 173.5 in November. Or, yeah, from the from the previous... Uh, October from the previous month. Um, Grant, let's talk about the consumer confidence and some of these numbers we've been seeing. So I think the latest data release is pointing towards a weaker economic growth towards the end of the year. That said, I think overall confidence levels are, are still high and we should, should see this in, in holiday spending. So we had the National Retail Federation expects sales in the, in the fourth quarter to grow by about 4% from last year. So that's some significant growth. I think that if we if we're able to sustain those that number and, and meet those expectations, it will be a, a good end of the year. But if we fall short, that that could also signal a growing weaker economy. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, when we were looking at the Atlanta Fed numbers, and you know, when we're looking at uh, the, you know, the New York Fed numbers, they're certainly a little bit weaker. When we look at this summer, GDP growth was forecast at 2.1%. And, um, you know, that exceeded the Commerce Department's expectations, which had been at 1.9%. But we have to put in context, the economy started, you know, growing at this year at 3.1%. So, I mean, this trade has forced businesses to cut investment and inventories. And that's why, you know, like the New York Fed's posting up numbers of expansion in the fourth corner at like 0.7%. And that's why Atlanta Fed GDP now is is indicating growth of only 0.4%, right? 
So that's definitely a big decrease in growth. I mean, even a 3.1% growth rate to a 2.1% growth rate in a short period of time is is definitely showing a, a contracting contracting economy right there. Um, I think there's there's two main reasons in my mind for the decrease in GDP. I think one, as you mentioned, is the continued trade tensions that have decreased company investment and expansion. As well as I think the the boost front that corporations receive from the tax cut is no longer apparent, so there's not that tailwind behind their sales. Uh, one thing that I would like to mention is, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, was about the thinning corporate profit margins, and right now we're we're seeing that as as corporate margins begin to shrink, this may be an indicator of a r- upcoming recessions because companies with thin- thinning profit margins are therefore not going to invest in projects and may actually start to to cut employees and everything around that. So if, if that is the case, then that will also have an impact on overall GDP, causing that to decrease. Mm-hmm. We should mention manufacturing numbers as well. I mean, the ISM's manufacturing PMI dropped to 48.1 in November, and the Institute for Supply Management had estimated these numbers to come in at 49.4. Uh, so that actually caused yesterday's sell-off on Monday. Um, Dow dropped 268.37 points, uh, which was the biggest one-day loss since October 8th. Um, I mean, manufacturing is going to be a tricky one. Uh, we have restored tariffs on metal imports coming from Brazil and Argentina. Um, President Trump cited the devaluation of their currencies, so... Uh, you know, steel is going to become more expensive. And, uh, you know, and when we talk about China, uh, Global Global Times recently reported that China is planning to retaliate with what's called a unreliable entity list, which, you know, is aiming at punishing businesses that Chinese deem harmful to their interests. So we'll be curious to see what that list will be. But I imagine it's going to be a slew of American manufacturing companies and car makers. So I think that would be a good guess. Yeah, I think it's interesting to as as we're seeing manufacturing data is weak across the globe. Um, you know, if we just look at the big four, big four tech companies here, we have Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, and and Apple, which all dropped by more than one percent yesterday, which is which is a huge decrease. Um, I think that we're seeing Monday's losses are, are coming after a strong performance in November, where we saw a lot of rallies uh, that may have been from optimism about the trade tensions, which now have have begun to, to decrease. I think the, the adding the tariffs to Brazil and Argentina is is going to have a big impact there because those are the two largest economies in South America. And Argentina currently is facing a recession. And then Brazil really has one of the highest unemployment rates as well as very little growth. Um, so I think continuing to add tariffs there may have a drastic impact on their on their economies. One thing that also came out this morning is that Trump has now indicated that we're going to be tax- taxing French goods over a, a tech tax that they that they are implementing. So, you know, as as we're continuing to increase and add tariffs, I think that's only going to continue to weigh on the manufacturing data. Yeah, I saw champagne was a big one. So I guess everyone moved to Prosecco for the New Year's and the holiday <laughs> season. But we should mention let's let's talk about the auto sales um, projected declines. Right. So Fitch ratings is predicted. Uh, global auto sales are expected to climb by 3.1 million units in 2019. So this is the largest unit drop since 2008, you know, which is big, big recession year. Uh, we've seen falling demand in China and in, in the United States as well. Fitch anticipates an approximate 2% decline in 
in U.S. sales to you know 16.9 million in 2009. So, uh, Grant, what, what are we thinking about auto sales, and and what is some of the analysis that Fitch has been giving us? Well, I think this ties right into what we were just previously talking about, about global manufacturing is currently in a contraction. So if we look at global passenger car sales, in 2018, it was the first year of decline sales since 2009. So there was about 80.6 million million in sales, down from 80.81, excuse me, 81.8 million in 2017. And now we're looking at an estimate of around 4% decrease to about 77.5 million new vehicle sales. So overall, we're seeing decrease in sales globally. So we're seeing not just in the United States where Ford, General Motors, and Honda have all started to cut back on production, but we're also seeing declines in Brazil, Russia, and India. Um, As you mentioned, huge decreases there in China as well. So it's just interesting how we're seeing a total car contraction across the globe right now. Yeah, I saw, I mean, the Chinese, the sales in China fell as much as 11% during the first um, 10 months. So, you know, we're looking at big ticket items like cars. Um, Any decline is, is, is noteworthy. Since our last conversation, uh, we have avoided a uh, government su- shutdown in the meantime, so I guess I'll just drop an update. Uh, I'm sure everyone has seen that in the last week, but uh, our measure is keeping funding of the government until December 20th, so we're, we're set for another potential shutdown, but the uh, vote for a continued resolution uh, passed pretty large margin in the Senate, 74 to 20, and then uh, a very more razor thin margin in the house, uh, 231 to 192. Um, we should note that the Congress has passed a two year agreement to set the budget levels and to spend the debt ceiling. But right now they still need to approve, uh, appropriations bills heading into the next year. So everyone, um, kind of be watching what's going on until December 20th. Uh, but you know, with that, I'd like to talk about, you know, we have a lot of policy paralysis, but none of this has really been, more apparent than a lot of the reports that have occurred on the American pension front. So pensions are chronically underfunded right now. Uh, we'll delve kind of deeper into that. I mean, you have something, some things like the Illinois Teachers Pension Fund is only, it's got a 40.7% funding ratio. So it's one of the worst in the countries. I mean, the Chicago Municipal is 25% funded. Uh, and the Center for Retirement Research shows that public pension funds are just 72.4% funded right now. I mean, keep in mind, we've just gotten, we're, we're still in the cycle of a, of a 10-year bull market, and this is how dismal these numbers are. So, so Grant, let's get into some of this data and, and I mean, how major of a problem uh, this, is, this has become for American retirees. Well, I think it's an absolute huge problem. Uh, I mean, we're seeing some pensions be 15 to 25% funded, which is drastically drastically below what what they should be and one of the things that that I'm looking at and thinking about is where as we mentioned in our in our last episode that we are not only in the longest bull market but also the best bull market so if I'm thinking about how these pensions are investing their money and we're seeing a, a huge period of significant growth and to still be that underfunded it it's a uh, kind of eye-opening to me yeah and and, and cities and states have kind of picked up on their share of spending, but it's it's still not nearly enough. I mean, in 2001, you had public and sector employers were contributing 
uh, you know, about 5.3% of their payrolls to meet their pension promises. Uh, from an employer standpoint, that number is now 16.5% on average. And um, in the no year since 2001 has an average employer contributed as much as demanded by actuaries. So as despite the fact that they're paying now 16.5% on average, that's way lower than what actuaries say they need to spend. And then, of course, cities and municipalities, you know, they don't like raising taxes, nor do they want to cut service to pay for higher contributions. Um, and then, of course, workers don't want to see their current pay reduced or by higher deductions. So you've got yourself this massive problem where everyone's footing the bill. And, and now we're at 2019 in the best stock market, you know, in our history. And yet, I mean, all these millions and millions of employees are just going to just fall short. Yeah, and I think one thing that that's really concerning is is how their the accounting treatment of these of these public sector funds. So the nominal rate that they're using right now after fees is about seven percent, which I think is pretty optimistic considering if you're not going to be totally invested in equities, we're seeing that corporate bonds are are pretty low yields right now. So there, there's a couple of things that go into calculating the cost of a pension. How long will people live? How much wages will rise and so on? Um, and so how you're calculating this cost is you're looking at future payments and you're discounting them back. And I think that the, the current discount rate is, is pretty high considering what they're figuring their cost could be. So if you're decreasing the the discount rate, as a lot of as we're seeing more and more people do, then you'll see that there's actually a higher cost. Um, and I think that the the cost of the pension is one of the biggest swing and a miss that we're seeing right now in the pension market. Yeah, costs are they're expensive, but then then also, I mean, the world's a different place. In 1982, you had uh, long term treasuries were yielding 14.6 percent. Now you know you're two and change, right? So and then equity valuations are increasingly high and, and we've seen very like radical examples of what happens when there is inevitably a market correction. I mean, rolling into um, kind of the dot com bubble, I mean, Kentucky was at one point its retirement funding was at 120 uh, percent. And then, you know, employers were putting in just one point nine percent of payroll. I mean, fast forward a few years after the dot-com um, bubble, and in 2005, the scheme was only was less than 75%. And then employers' contributions had to go up to 5.3%. So, um, I mean, when we look at, I mean, these, these market corrections have a massive, massive impact on pensions, uh, even if they're funded at 120% at that point. Now, if they're in at, you know, 75%, we have another correction. I mean, you're, you've got funding of... 40 to 50s across the board. Yeah, well, I think that's another interesting point is, I mean, the average public sector is less funded than they were in 2001, which, yes, they may have taken a big hit in the Great Recession uh, in 2008. But now that you've been riding the longest, best bull market and you're still 15 percent underfunded, then I think that that speaks highly to how people are investing in these and underestimating the cost and payouts. Yeah, I mean, I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, I we're just way too we're just very reticent to raise taxes on anything um or or cut services. I mean, actuarially going into this, you know, you're basing your pension off on the last year of your of your wages and people just didn't expect us to live this long at this point. So, I mean, you just have a myriad of factors that are really really hurting our ability to retire and, you know, have us in what what is essentially you know a massive retirement crisis right now but 
And uh, I think with that, you know, on a that jury note, we should kind of move on to another topic, uh, which is uh, the Hong Kong and Human Rights and Democracy Act. So <laughs> uh, we saw, you know, we've seen somewhat of, we've seen a lot of, you know, protests and a lot of issues in Hong Kong, which stemmed ex- initially from the extradition um, deal they had with the Chinese government, but has, has gone on to other things. Uh, so President Donald Trump signed two bills into law supporting the uh, Hong Kong protesters on Wednesdays. Uh, the f- laws are intended to preserve, you know, Hong Kong's rights and autonomy. Um, one of them could actually end up affecting our economies uh, as well, which is that, um, you know, the, f- the first bill is that it could lead to a removal of the so-called special status that Hong Kong currently enjoys. Uh, and that would hurt, you know, China's um, economic prospects. Um, and you know, Hong Kong—it's—it's not—it's not what it was relative to China's economy. But but since it's you know been under Chinese rule since 1997, it's—it has been kind of a financial and, and intellectual capital in China. So anything that might remove its you know status and uh, with the time with China might affect it. And then um, oh, I guess I should mention the other bill you know, is barring the sale of munitions to Hong Kong police. So I think that the the special treatment of the city is, is definitely going to stay intact because it would just have such a potential to the global financial market. That is how people are accessing, excuse me, the Chinese market. So I think that, you know, the U.S. is very unlikely to revoke this this special fallout. Um, one thing to mention, too, is that China has already retaliated yesterday and has suspended uh, visits to Hong Kong by American warships and imposed sanctions on U.S.-based non-governmental groups in Hong Kong. So that's something to, to look for. I mean, just overall, Hong Kong status in the global market and business center is is pretty much the middleman between China and the rest of the world. So I think that if there is a threat to this special status, that's going to be really important. Um, you know, for example, we, we treat Hong Kong a little bit differently than than China, because if you just take the U.S. tariffs, for example, that are imposed on China, those don't apply to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is its own own little economic hub right there. And so I, I, I think that it's really interesting to see how this will continue to play out with protests and, and the tension between China and U.S. continues to increase. Yeah, I think we, we've seen companies buckle to the government demands of China, right? So you had HK Maps, for instance, um, you know, it was Apple. Uh, the Chinese government pretty much forced Apple's hands and the Hong Kong Maps had been showing you know, they had little emojis indicating this is where police are. So protesters could either link up with other protesters and either avoid, you know, police or, or confront them, depending on what they wanted to do. So you've seen, you know, you've, you, you saw Apple buckle on that because, you know, China hardlined them. And, and we look to, I think, you know, what Bill Clinton and a lot of people were saying in the 1990s, which is that it'd be very difficult for governments to, you know, end the Internet and apply pressure on, you know, free market tech companies well we've seen that the government has an extraordinary amount of power over tech companies an extraordinary amount of power over over these kind of agreements and and internet has not necessarily led to um it might have lessened to more more economic freedom but in terms of political freedoms and in terms of of the market's ability to operate that way it certainly hasn't but well that's the point that mark 
Zuckerberg made during his testimony to Congress is that, you know, the U.S. regulations on Internet is one, but there's a lot of places around the world that think that the Internet shouldn't be this free speech and free flowing content. Um, so that's that's going to be a big a big piece of this. I, I mean, I just have to go back to this is Hong Kong is just where all these Chinese companies raise their funds. They list on the Hong Kong exchange. Um, so if, if there's going to be continued turbulence there, there may be a significant decrease in the amount of companies that are that are in Hong Kong. Yeah, we've seen China in a couple important ways um, try and try and leverage themselves in terms of, you know, the political risk that's kind of born out of Hong Kong and also some of the, the risks from the trade war. I mean, they recently created a new $21 billion high-tech manufacturing fund, uh, which, you know, is, I mean, obviously Beijing wants to position itself as a leader in, in technology globally. But this is one of the what we call, you know, deadly sins uh, of China, which is that they have relied heavily on government subsidies and their Made in China 2025 initiative has forced a lot of technology transfers from um, Western uh, companies. So so the fact that, you know, we still have we're still seeing moves like this is, is kind of vexing. I think this is going to be a, a huge talk in the continuing trade tensions because, as you said, this is one of the biggest pieces is the forced technology transfer transfer of our intellectual property over to over to Chinese companies, uh, and then the continued backing. We're seeing the the made in China twenty twenty five is is going to be a, a huge push for them. Still, uh, we're seeing that there's a huge national semiconductor fund as well as an emerging and high tech industries fund just within in this. So I think that it, it, it's going to continue to be a, a topic of, of discussion and tension between the U.S. and Chinese. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think we should mention, too, that uh, the Chinese just actually had their biggest international uh, sovereign bond yield um, sale on, on Tuesday. You know, they had orders of six billion dollars um, raised, reaching, you know, three point six times the level of issuance. Um, so so in a you know, world low world interest rates, um, them them having a bond yield sale like this is kind of interesting. Uh, let's kind of get into, I guess, some of the analysis that Asian savings rates are part of the reason why. Um, you know, global interest rates are so low right now. I mean, so East Asia as a whole, um, their GDP adds up, you know, their savings adds up to 35% of GDP. And that really hasn't changed over three decades. So I mean, you know, I think that the Asian savings glut is, you know, part of the under uh, part of the underlying cause of both, you know, the housing boom and bust across the world, but also with with lower interest rates. Yeah, well, this was one of the big things that Bernanke signaled to and was concerned in the early 2000s was that Asia's excess cash was flooding into the bond market in America and also now beyond, and then therefore it's depressing long-term real interest rates. Uh, so I just I, I think that we're seeing that, that that's continuing to happen today, 15 years later. Yeah, and I mean, you see some of these economies like saving at the rates, you know, of of Germany, right? So, I mean, China used to... Their surplus kind of ended about ten years ago, but but South Korea is larger than it used to be. Taiwan savings are larger than they used to be, and and if you look at the current uh, surpluses in Asia's big economies, they add up to you know 0.6 percent of global GDP, which is 
which is about the same as, as Europe, um, despite the fact that, you know, Europe's by and large more developed. So, so I think all of this is kind of furthering, furthering what is already 12 trillion plus in negative yields around the world. Yeah, well, I think one thing that, that a cause of concern that, that the U.S. has had is that this was, you know, a, an intervention to hold down currencies of their currencies. So we're actually seeing that South Korea and Singapore started regularly publishing data about their uh, their currency. And then we've also seen Vietnam and, and Thailand starting to accumulate foreign exchange reserves. Um, so I think that this there, there is a push to be more transparent with the with the overall um savings let's let's get into one factor from that region of the world that could potentially lead to higher yields and that's um the global bonds and and india's emphasis on opening its doors to a, a sovereign bond market so prime minister modi you know is setting his sights on doubling the size of the economy uh, and they're really trying to open up their bond markets and some of the regulations around there. Um, so, I mean, right now, overseas investors just have about 3.7% of, you know, almost 16 trillion rupees of sovereign debt issued by the government. But they um, and, and they had to set a 6% limit on foreign ownership. But now they seem to be open to, you know, increasing, increasing their market of their of their bonds. Well, they've had a history of being protective of of their policy and not allowing overseas investors. So currently, we're we're seeing right now foreign investors hold just three point seven percent of almost sixty trillion uh, rubles of sovereign bonds. Uh, so, and as you mentioned, that the six percent limit. So I think the biggest hurdle is going to be removing and significantly, or I guess significantly rolling back the limits on on foreign ownership on these bonds, and then also allowing the rupee to trade more freely on the international market, because I think that that will be a, a key aspect to attract more international investors. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a lot of developing market peers they have in, in Asia, I mean, you look at Indonesia, uh, there are no caps on these on, on globally owned funds and, you know, um, and, 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 and foreign funds own you know, about 40% of this local currency government debt. So, I mean, I, I do think the fact that the Indians are opening up their bond markets is going to allow fixed income investors around the world to enjoy some higher yields. Uh, in terms of Bloomberg's bond, uh, Bloomberg's Barclays indices, in order to join that, um, you know, right now Bloomberg says that um, they, they they have India's status as a developed market in terms of the fact that there's an established currency spot and a forward um, slash NDF market. Um, where they have uh, a criteria that it's not meeting the standards is that the rupee is not fully convertible. So uh, rupees are only fully convertible on a current account. Bloomberg does consider India's bonds to be investment grade. And lastly, in terms of the criteria, is it a market free of capital controls? Uh, no, ultimately, you know, the Indian government places quite a bit of caps on foreign investments and bonds. So. With that, I think we should just end the, uh, the podcast on what we're looking forward to. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start. Of course, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the December 20th, the government um, continuation, to see if we avoid a shutdown um, this year. I mean, last year was the longest on record. I'm more optimistic this year. It seems like, you know, everyone's been paper stamping everything. So there's not as much 
debate on on continuing resolutions and and debt ceilings as there were last year. And lastly, uh, what happens to the U.S.-China trade deal by December 15th. So That's definitely a huge one. I think everyone's looking out for that. I would just add that we saw that the new North American trade deal is, is going to be in front of Congress here pretty soon. So it will be interesting to see how the how the House votes on it, because it is a pretty progressive trade deal that I think a lot of them are are optimistic about. But then also this would give Trump a pretty big win during the impeachment hearings and then going into the 2020 election. So we'll see how how politics plays out in that one, because I think it would be great to have that that trade deal signed myself. Thanks for everyone who's subscribing to the podcast. If you haven't already, uh, please do so. We do stuff on LinkedIn. So if you see something, uh, feel free to like or share. And we will be back at it next week. Uh, hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Thanks. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.